mantras. I was saying yesterday, the mantra uh, sinks into the heart, becomes rooted in the heart. And it's difficult to describe this uh, outside the experience because, you know, if you say the mantra sounds by itself, it sounds as if you've got some clock ticking, you know, and, uh, uh, or that you can't get on with ordinary life. Uh, but of course you can. It's simply, it's not that the mantra then takes over your ordinary levels of consciousness, prevents you from being a good cardiologist or a good patient, but uh, it's that it, it really opens up a, a, a new level of consciousness, a deeper level of consciousness, a more inclusive, comprehensive kind of consciousness in which, which is perfectly harmonized with all of the other um, levels of consciousness that we operate on, the daily, the practical, and so on. So, I'd just like to say a word about the stages. Um, now, speaking about the stages of meditation, uh, again, depends on whether you take a close-up view of the process, or you zoom, you zoom in, or whether you zoom out and you take, you take a panoramic view uh, of, the, of the whole process. And one can take either perspective. It's a journey, it's like a journey. Meditation is often described, the best metaphor maybe for it is a journey rather than a course that you do, or a qualification that you gain, or you know, a limited period of time where you train at something. So it's a, it's a journey, like life is a journey, is one of the best ways we can understand our own life experience, is that it is part of a continuous journey, there's a continuum, but there are certainly stages in our life. And uh, what are the really significant stages? Uh, it usually takes time for us to step back, you know, and... Uh, uh, and then there are moments, say the, the wedding ceremony, is certainly a moment you would remember for the rest of your life, but you know, that's only just the manifestation of a, of a stage, of a relationship that itself had stages and so on and so on. So, um, so the, the, the perspective matters, but think of it as a journey. Uh, and the essential aspect of this journey cannot be measured. You can measure certain uh, aspects of it, you know, uh, the um, statistics uh, relating to the effect that meditation has on your uh, body, on your immune system, on your uh, uh, what's the word, your, your blood pressure and so on, or your sleep patterns, or maybe you would recognize uh, you're a, a better able to deal with stressful conditions or difficult people, and you don't go around kicking other people's cars so much, so you notice uh, changes that you could measure. But the, the, what are those changes? Those changes are really not ends in themselves, the changes are signs, manifestations. We hear that word manifestation quite a lot in, in the Tao. Uh, the Tao itself cannot be named, cannot be measured. 
but it has manifestations which you can name and measure. So there are aspects of this journey which we just accept as the editor of The Lancet, we, Barry was talking about yesterday, uh, we just recognize uh, the scientific method cannot handle everything. It's very good for what it does, but it doesn't handle everything. So, um, this is why I sometimes make a distinction between the benefits of meditation, which you can more or less measure or perceive easily, uh, and the fruits of meditation, which are very significant uh, experiences of change, or the release of potential, or the freeing of uh, obstacles within ourselves, that, cost, that build up to a, really a transformation of our, of our mind, of our personality, of our behavior, of our self, and open up for us um, you know, some of the, the deepest insights that we will have in life. So, um, and the fruits of meditation, there's a very similar list of them actually in uh, St. Paul's letter to the Galatians and in the Buddhist text, the Dharmapada. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And St. Paul adds, there is no law dealing with such things as these. So, uh, he's uh, talking about being free from religious legalism, but you could almost say it's also free or transcending of the scientific method of analysis and measurement. You can't really measure love. You can't really measure joy. So, um, now, having said that, I think we, we can draw some useful guidelines or sketch out some stages which will be different for each person but are pretty much the human uh, journey of meditation. Say so in relationship to the mantra. At first we begin to say the mantra. We're constantly interrupted by our distractions. We get discouraged, we get confused, we don't, we don't feel we're making any progress. Uh, and we probably will give up. If we have a support structure, if we have a connection to a source of a tradition or to encouragement in some form, that is going to say, okay, this is the first stage. You're just discovering that you're distracted. And saying the mantra is a work. Don't say it too, with too much pressure or too much... Don't say it impatiently. Don't use force. Uh, learn to, you know, ride the bike with a light touch, and uh, so on. So we need that probably to uh, to persevere. And then we will find that gradually it's as if the distractions are still there. Maybe the volume decreases, and they recede more into the background of the mind. So you just let them carry on like background noise, uh, noise of the, from the street or whatever. Sometimes, of course, there's a big crash on the street and a, a distraction 
uh, suddenly erupts and you find yourself thinking about some problem uh, for ten minutes and you wonder where you've been, how you could be so distracted. But the important thing is that you are aware that you're distracted. That's the positive thing. That's what you should be pleased about. And then, as soon as you are aware of it, you drop the, the thought, at whatever stage the thought is, or the fantasy is, you drop it like a dream, and you come back to your mantra. And that's is the coming back to the mantra, saying the mantra, and coming back to it, that brings about this process, or this journey, that leads over time to the, the, the rooting of the mantra in the center of our consciousness. So you could say then that the second stage, after saying the mantra, is sounding it. And what that means is, is that you're using less conscious effort. It's a little easier. And you're recognizing that saying the mantra is not like hammering a nail, in, but it's more like sounding a, um, uh, a gong, or, or so sounding a harmonic. Uh, when, when people uh, ring the meditation bell for the first time in the group, they often go, meditation, that is not the best thing to do. So then, you know, it's very nice, you did it very nicely, but uh, could you just do it a little more gently? And then people say, what a lovely sound that is, it really helps me into meditation. So it's more as if you're sounding the mantra with a, 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 a gentler, the key word here is gentle or subtle, a more gentle uh, way. The distractions are still there, but over time you will find that the distractions bother you less. You don't focus on the distractions, you don't evaluate the meditation on whether you were distracted or not. You get good days and bad days, you get days where you just, you know, the, the internal weather is very bad and your meditation seems a bit of a struggle, but you do it. You, it's like getting up in the morning, you don't feel like going to work, but you've got to go to work, so you go to work. Or you've got to get the children clothed and fed, and you, so you do it. So it's gradually now beginning, beginning to be part of your life. So, uh, and then there are other days when the, when the meditation, uh, the, the distractions are, are very uh, faint, and you may even have moments, brief moments, where you are free of distractions. And like, but like today, it's a sunny day, there's some clouds up there, they're light clouds, the, the sunlight's still coming through. Um, but then there are some days where there are no clouds at all. You say, what a beautiful day, it's just, just not a cloud in the sky. Now, if you're meditating and you get that kind of day, that kind of weather condition, 
And you say to yourself, well, I know what, I know what this means now. I have no distractions. But the thought, I had no distractions, is a thought, and therefore a distraction. So, the, the little temptation at this point, in the desert, would be to say, I don't need to say the mantra anymore because I'm, uh, I've arrived on top of the mountain. I, you know, I'm, I'm enlightened, this is great. But, this is where you understand a little more about what you're doing, what you've been doing. That the purpose of the mantra is not only to calm the mind or to bring about a changed state of mind. Of course, it's much better and nicer to have a clear, calm mind than to have an agitated, nervous, compulsive mind. But the purpose of the mantra, ultimately, is, as we, as we see in all of these wisdom texts, to take us into a point we say of transcendence where we leave self behind and that isn't something we force it's not something you choose to do it's something that happens it emerges so we saying yesterday you can't force yourself to fall in love so you have to wait for it to happen and uh, you prepare yourself for it and uh, it happens at all, in all sorts of different levels and different ways Meditation makes your life very interesting. So, uh, this is the second stage where we're sounding the mantra with more gentleness, more acceptance. We're not so worried about whether our meditation is successful or not successful. And these sort of questions just begin to diminish or their frequency reduces. And then the third stage of meditation, of the mantra, you could say, is where you are listening to the mantra. That's your... So the mantra is now rooted in you gently, and it's not... It's, it's rooting like the herbs I planted a few weeks ago and are, are growing. It's, <coughs> it's great to see that they're, they're growing. And the roots are just there, and you know, I can't see what's happening to them, but I can see that they're, they're healthy. So in the same way, the mantra now has become healthily rooted in your being, and the roots are spreading all around you, all around your personal cosmos, and uh, bringing and giving nutrition to every aspect of your life. And so you're now listening to the mantra. Uh, so you still need a little bit of effort, probably, when you sit down to meditate, to start, start. But then it, the whole thing has become more subtle, more gentle, more friendly, and you are now listening to it as you say it. And this is where you are really coming close to the point where you will be able to transcend the camcorder of the ego and the ego observe, the observing ego and the measuring ego and the evaluating ego and so on. Because in this subtle, but it, now this is, this is real work as well. It isn't just relaxation. This is real work, but it's like the work. Ernie is writing a book at the moment, if you don't mind me saying so. And I asked him this morning, how's it going? And he's, he's in a 
fury of ideas and great creativity. So, uh, so in the same way, this work of meditation is, is deeply creative and regenerative and healing, but it is work, not just relaxation. And so, and the work is, through this process of gentleness, to transcend the ego, to take the attention off yourself. And the only way you can take the attention off yourself is to put your attention elsewhere. That's what we're doing in the time of meditation. And that spills over into a whole other-centeredness kind of lifestyle. So, uh, and then there's a fourth stage which we just could just say where the mantra leads us into complete silence. But a silence where you are not saying, oh, I'm silent, this is really good, I'm successful, this is a really good meditation. So it's not that kind of silence, but it's, uh, it's the, the fullness of being that we uh, are hearing about and uh, being introduced to in different ways through these texts. So, and as soon as the self-reflective consciousness clicks back in and says, oh, either a thought or an observation, then uh, the mantra will start again or you go back to the mantra. So that's the, that's the reason for this teaching, which is to say the mantra until you can no longer say it and we don't choose when to stop saying it. Uh, that's, that's, that's the reason, that's the context in which we, we practice it in this way. Now, that's one way of describing the stages of meditation. Um, if you sort of zoom in now uh, on the, the journey and you just look at one little episode, one meditation, one, one moment in the meditation, you, you could say there's another way we could, we could see a cycle or being repeated. And so you're saying the mantra, and then you suddenly realize you're not saying it anymore, or you're saying it with about 1% of your attention, and the other 99% is, like Martha, scattered all over the kitchen. So, you could say that at that moment, you, 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 you forgot. You forgot why you sat down and went through all these little exercises to sit down and meditate. You forgot why you were doing it. You forgot to say the mantra. Simple forgetting. So, okay, it's a bit irritating when you forget something, but you don't really punish yourself. You just forgot. and So then, uh, instead of beating yourself up and evaluating yourself and giving yourself an E for failing to meditate like the Buddha, uh, instead of that, you forgive. And this is one little 
example, I think, of the healing element of meditation. It happens in each moment. So you just say, well, you don't say, but you just, you, you go through the cycle, you forget, you accept and forgive, you move on, and you remember. You are then, you start saying the mantra again, and you're, you're remembering, you're back into uh, conscious, a conscious uh, state. Then, I think, in another perspective on this journey, uh, everybody who has started it, uh, has almost everybody, not everybody, but mostly 99.9% of people, probably uh, started to meditate with some enthusiasm, some hope, uh, experiment. Uh, if you do an experiment, you hope it's going to succeed. Uh, and then, for one reason or another, they uh, gave up. Could be external circumstances, it could be a, a loss of in, interior motivation, it could be all, whatever sort of reason. It could be because you actually began to feel that the meditation was beginning to, to do something, to work. And you got a little bit nervous. Like the disciples in the boat, after the storm was calmed, they got frightened of, of the uh, power of, of, of calmness. So, well, for whatever reason, or just because your mother-in-law comes to stay, or you go on holiday, or you get a, a, a week with bad flu, and uh, it throws you off course, or you go on holiday, uh, and so you stop meditating. Now, of course, the longer you don't meditate, the, the more it, it gets pushed into a category of your mind. It's one of these things I would like to do, would like to have done, should have done, maybe will day in the future, but it gets pushed further and further back. You know, in the Gmail, there's an inbox, which is a very, very good feature, actually. It's called... I think it's called snooze. Anyway, you, you, you know you ought to reply to the email. You, you know you're not going to do it today, so you send it forward. So a week or a day, and then it appears, it appears again, which is very useful. But um, if you keep <laughs> kicking it down, like kicking a can down the road, uh, you get more and more distant from it. So that may be one reason that we, the period of not meditating gets longer and longer. However, at some point, something kicks back in, and for whatever reason, you say, oh, I'll try again, I'll try again. And you do. You sit down and you start again. What do you find at that moment? You don't find any rebuke. There's no little internal voice. The teacher within is not going to say, ha ha, we're waiting for you. What have you been doing? Uh, you've been off squandering my money 
with living a life of debauchery, like the prodigal son, uh, there's just back home. Just come back home. You had a long, day, long time away. And home is where your heart is. So you're coming back to yourself, and if it's a real home, you will always get a good welcome. So, you may have to get used to some things again, but you'll also see it, like coming back home, uh, after some time away, you look at it with new eyes for a moment, and you really appreciate it. And you understand it better, you understand its value better. So, this is also part of the journey. I think giving up and starting again, having this whoosh, you know, looking for this whoosh that we were talking about yesterday. And, uh, and the experience that coming home to yourself through, this, through meditation is actually a, a, a kind of, a, more like an experience of an embrace than a negotiation or a handshake. It's actually friendly. So I think those are some ways that we might, um, we might think about the stages of meditation that we all pass through, but we pass through them in our own unique story. And just on this question of friendliness, we could end with this, these words of Einstein. He says, I think the most important question facing humanity is, is the universe a friendly place? This is the first and most basic question all people must answer for themselves. For if we decide that the universe is an unfriendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to achieve safety and power by creating bigger walls to keep out the unfriendliness and bigger weapons to destroy all that which is unfriendly. And I believe that we are getting to a place where technology is powerful enough that we may either completely isolate or destroy ourselves as well in this process. If we decide that the universe is neither friendly nor unfriendly, and that God is essentially playing dice with the universe, then we are simply victims to the random toss of the dice and our lives have no real purpose or meaning. But, if we decide that the universe is a friendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries and our natural resources to create tools and models for understanding that universe, because power and safety will come through understanding its workings and its motives. So this experience of meditation uh, really does bring us into this friendliness. Friendly with ourselves, first of all. And it is amazing how suspicious and Frightened we are, even of ourselves. And if that is the case, naturally that's going to be how we treat the world. So the big surprise is that it is all much more loving and friendly than we imagined.
And the beginning of that transformation of mind is, I think, what happens when we continue to meditate, when we start to meditate again, and when we go back to the mantra. And remember what he says here, this is the first and most basic question that every person must answer for themselves. So, this isn't something that any book or talk is going to give you. It's something each of us has to find for ourselves. But as soon as we find it for ourselves, we have then begun to give it to the world, to our professions, to our institutions, to our families, and so on. 